Did Swedenborg have any dialogue with Jesus? Did the angels help us find and connect with our soulmate? Does Swedenborg mention suicide? Will we be able to see God when we pass God away? God is omniscient, and why would How he can someone even? gain heavenly reward? Is the afterlife more life if God is the source of Does Swedenborg tell us anything about our Hey everybody, welcome back to Swedenborg and Life. It's another installment of our 10 Questions series. My name is Curtis Childs and I'll be your host. And today we're going to be taking your questions and giving our best shot at answering them. We'll be looking at everything from, are human beings inherently evil? Is there any truth to that? To, if Swedenborg is so great, then why isn't he better known? To, could you take all these concepts we talk about on this channel and apply them to your life without actually believing in a life after death? Does the immortality of the soul have to be in there? You ask, we do our best to answer. Hope you enjoy. Bailey asks, so God is just a human? This question grabbed me because it seems to be kind of a sad commentary on both the nature of God and the nature of ourselves and our fellow human beings. I could be reading it wrong, but I think I hear a kind of disappointment in this question. And it's happened before that a friend new to Swedenborg has asked me this question with a real sense of feeling let down. So that surprised me because I've grown up with the idea that God is gloriously human, and that human, with a capital H, is the best thing ever. <laughs> so, um, of course, we are living on a planet where human beings certainly are doing horrendous things all the time. And we do use the term only human when, we're ref when we are referring to some sort of universal frailty or shortcoming of the human race. It's only human to want to be right all the time. Only human to lose our temper. It's human nature to want the biggest piece of the pie. But that's because we're currently here in this earthbound stage of humanity. So let's look at being human from another angle. First of all, in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1 verse 27, we read that God created man, or the human race, in his own image. In the image of God, he created us. Male and female, he created us. So presumably God is the ultimate, the absolute tops in terms of everything. And if he created us in his own image, that means God is human too. So being human must be pretty darn good, if that's what God is. And we have been given that same image, likeness, form, that chapter ends with the words, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Very good is not too shabby. Now Swedenborg asserts that that absolute tops God has embodied humanity in both its depths and its heights. According to Swedenborg, in a nutshell, the creator of the universe, God the Father, took on an earthly body so as to have the outermost human experience of life in this world. The crying baby, the stubbed toes, the playground bullies, the awkward adolescents, etc. 
This humble human nature allowed him to fully live our experience of being human and made it possible for us to relate to him. It also allowed the hells to have access to him as no powers of darkness can get anywhere near divine love in its pure essence. And that access allowed the spiritual battles to happen in which Jesus triumphed over hell so that he could restore spiritual balance for the human race and this, the human race could have salvation. When he finished that work, Jesus's human nature was transformed or glorified and he rose into the heavens on Easter morning as the glorified Lord God Jesus Christ, a human made divine, the divine human. I can see that there might be an air of disappointment in Bailey's question because of course we want God to be so much more than a bumbling human being like the rest of us. But if God weren't human, what kind of relationship could we have with him? How can we feel a heart connection to some cosmic formless energy or some indescribable invisible power? How can we feel that God is working in our life, partnering with us to grow toward a more heavenly existence if we don't conceive of him as another person? Swedenborg says over and over again that it's essential for us to have a visible human idea of God. Here's a couple of quick quotes from True Christianity 188. The Lord's human manifestation is divine. For us to gain access to the Father, we have to go to his human manifestation, since this is how Jehovah God put himself in the world and made himself visible to human eyes. Through this, he became accessible. And then there's another True Christianity quote, 538. God the Father cannot be seen and is therefore inaccessible and unavailable for partnership. This is why he came into the world and made himself able to be seen, accessible, and available for partnership. He did this for only one reason, so that human beings could be saved. If we do not direct our thinking toward God as a human being, our whole mental sight of God is lost. Just as Jesus went through the trenches of being human and rose all glorious, so we go through the trenches of the human experience to a better, higher state. In fact, one of the beauties of being human is that we have the capacity to grow and change and work toward our best nature. We aren't just stuck in a static level of existence like a rock or a bush or a groundhog. <laughs> we have the ability to take a look at ourselves and, and with God's empathetic help, to work on weeding out the ugly things we find inside us. That's the path to pursuing true wisdom and real love and the journey to becoming an angel, which, according to Swedenborg, is just a reborn, transformed human being. In the New King James translation of Psalm 8, we read, What is man that you are mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. I've always loved that description of man or humanity. It gives me hope in my moments of self-doubt or despair. And I can't end this response without at least mentioning Swedenborg's concept of the universal human, or as I like to call it, the great big human being. 
You've probably seen our video, You Are the Lungs, on this YouTube channel, and I'm sure it's been discussed in many other episodes. But I just point out that if all of heaven is structured like a human being, with all its miraculous forms and functions and interactions, and if our human bodies and spirits are a microcosm of that human form, and if the divine humanity of God is the reality that encompasses all of that, then being human is potentially pretty grand. Going back to Bailey's question, of course God is not just a human. He is a divine human with endless divine love, perfect divine wisdom, omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. That's all having all power, having all knowledge, and being present everywhere. Of course, we can't attain that level of humanity. That is God's exclusive territory. But we are created in its image and likeness. And the spiritual work we do will cause us to become more and more beautifully human to eternity, an ever-evolving image of God's divine humanity. Okay, why isn't Swedenborg more well-known around the world? It seems someone in tune with God like Swedenborg would be popular in religious circles. Uh, that question is by Flip122720000. And the other question is, did Swedenborg intend to start a new church by Harlan? Okay, so the answer to the first question is, the reason why Swedenborg is not well known is actually because of his theological writings, uh, if that makes sense. If Swedenborg's life and work was relegated to his scientific work and his influence in regards to that, even though he was so much ahead of his time, he would be a lot more well-known. Um, and not to go into conspiracy theories or anything like that, but just from the perspective of talking to uh, my friends who are familiar with the writings, theological writings of Swedenborg, and they're concerned about the growth of those writings, I often look at it from the perspective of if you don't want something to be known, you bury it. You don't talk about it even if in a negative way if you disagree with it. And if you think about the overall 30 plus volumes of Swedenborg's works, um, there are a lot of people in the world that we live in, scientific world, religious world, economic world, political world, um, even in the psychological world, who don't want to have to answer Swedenborg. Um, so his theological writings make it so that it's better for, say, for instance, the scientific world that tends to be atheistic. One of their biggest weapons against theological matters is that the mystery part, a lot of it doesn't make sense. It's not logical. It doesn't line up with scientific fact. Well, when you read the writings of Manuel Swedenborg, it answers those questions. It, there's no mysteries of faith. Um, it answers even to the extent of creation that goes into this scientific, logical, rational point of view. And he was a scientist. So that would lend people to say, okay, well, you know, instead of us having to answer this guy in regards to the fact that he was a scientist who turned to theology, it's better that, you know, nobody knows who he is. Uh, we look at the religious aspect in regards to culturally, um, culturally uh, orthodox 
Christianity is the term I like to use. When you look at what Swedenborg says in regards to the church, um, it's better for them not to have to answer those questions because um, if they go out and condemn what he says, it attracts people to him. Um, just like in the scientific world, if they recognize his scientific, even if they abstract it, but if they recognize his scientific achievements alone, it's going to lead people to the theological writings. If in the uh, church as it stands that we know of, if they emphasize his theological writings in a way of attacking them, it's going to lead people to read those things. And that's what they want to defend themselves against. And it's, there really would be no logical, rational, scientific defense against it, so it's better to bury it. When we look at the economic and political world, Swedenborg speaks of love of self and love of the world as being those ruling things that are basically the fundamental and essence of the evils that be in the world. That realm does not want, you know, it's better to bury it. Um, so when we look at why Swedenborg is not known, it's be it is because it behooves the natural world that we live in not for the general public and the scientific world and all of these different realms of life that we live in not to know the theological writings of Swedenborg. And if you acknowledge him for what he has done in either realm, it doesn't fit the world that we live in in regards to whether you call it the powers that be in any aspect of life. So that, and I hope, that kind of explains that because you do when people that's the first question that you get when people look at when people uh whether it be off the left eye or whatever when they hear the name Swedenborg and they go research Swedenborg it's the first thing that comes to mind especially with all the influence that he had that's the first thing that comes to mind why isn't this person well more well known it's because of those theological writings that people want to bury and we're just we just don't live in a world who is willing and to accept that type of divine truth. And then that goes into the next question, which is, did Swedenborg ever um, intend to start a church? The answer to that is simply no. And I, I want to use a biblical parallel uh, with Moses. Moses never got to see the promised land. He died before, even though he led. Moses's, Moses had a speech impediment, so did Swedenborg. Moses had a scientific preparation through Egypt, who had the knowledge of correspondences and sciences at, during his time. Um, so did Swedenborg. So Moses' job was contrary to what we might think about him leading literally the children out of Israel. His primary job, and Swedenborg says he, was, he signifies the word, was to write those five books of the Old Testament. His job was not to start a church. His job was to put forth the writings. Swedenborg never started to try to start a church himself. He didn't live to see any actual new church in the natural realm because that's not what he was put here for. And it could have, um, in Providence, it would have defeated the purpose because then people would have been able to attack him. Um, and that also goes back full circle to reasons why he's not as well known because he... Um, was not meant to be well known. It was what he wrote.
in a theological sense. I just want, I would, would like to refer to two books, uh, Scribe of Heaven, which you can get from the Free Swedenborg Foundation, and then there's another book uh, called, um, it's a pictorial, bibliog it's a uh, biographical pictorial, very thick book. You can get both of those from the Swedenborg Foundation, and they'll answer more of those questions in regards to Swedenborg and why he isn't, not directly, but why he isn't as popular as he should be or known as he should be, and why he didn't start a church. So that's it. Hope that was helpful. Kiki asks, did Swedenborg train one other person to continue his teachings before he died? In short, no. Swedenborg didn't train anyone to continue his teachings before he died. Um, there is one recorded instance I know of from when a person explicitly asked to be a disciple of Swedenborg and asked to be taught how to communicate with, Sweden with spirits like Swedenborg did. Um, and this was somebody named Baron von Hatzel. He was a friend of a friend. Um, so Count Gustavus von Bond was a friend of Swedenborg who also served in the Swedish government and knew Baron von Hatzel. And so Bond passed along a letter to Swedenborg from Baron von Hatzel. And so this, uh, which was written in August 7th, on August 7th, 1760. And this is from the letter from Baron von Hatzel to Swedenborg. Well-born sir, from my venerable, pious, and deeply learned friend, His Excellency Count G. Bond, I first heard of the extraordinary insight and illumination wherewith the Almighty has been pleased to gift you. But subsequently, I was able to perceive and see it more clearly by the writings which you have published in London, and some of which I have read with amazement. Now, as from my early youth, with the talent which God has entrusted to me, I have striven after truth, striven, striven, and have preferred theosophy to all other things. The desire has sprung up in me not only to make your acquaintance, but also in many things to become your disciple, and by following the same way in which you began and have succeeded so well, to reach, under your guidance, the same fountain of wisdom and intelligence and to taste of its waters. And in making this request of you, I am not impelled by the desire to become great or wealthy or distinguished above others, but only to acquire wisdom. And as you yourself know and teach that all good is and must be communicated to others, I therefore flatter myself that you will promote what I intend and not withhold your help, and especially that you will kindly point out to me in which of the five books of Moses, in which chapter and in which two verses, lies concealed the power of entering into consort with spirits. Likewise, how this power is to be used and how one must comport with himself. It is a great favor which I here ask from you whom I love. Um, and it goes on. So he wants to be one of Swedenborg's disciples. And uh, later in the letter, he even says that if you take me on as a disciple, I would love to translate your works into German and French. Um, and, and I just find it interesting that he's specifically asking that training question, like, will you train me in how to or where I can figure out how to talk to spirits like you do. Um, and so Swedenborg replies to Bond four days later and asks him to write to Baron von Hotzel on his behalf. Um, in this letter, in reply to Bond, Swedenborg deflects the disciple request, saying that he can't enter into correspondence with Baron von Hotzel um, or with anybody abroad 
von Hotzel is in Rotterdam because at this time, Sweden, because he publishes anonymously. Um, and it would be eight years until Swedenborg would put his name to one of his um, books. Also in his reply to Bond, Swedenborg addresses the question about communicating with spirits. So I'm going to quote this part too. So this is the letter from Swedenborg to Bond about Baron von Hatzel. He says, with respect to some verses in the books of Moses, which possess the property and power of introducing man into intercourse with spirits or enabling him to speak with them, I do not know of any verses in scripture which have this property more than others. I only know that the word of God is everywhere written in such a style that when a man reads it with affection and attention, angels and spirits have a part in it and adjoin themselves to him. For the word of God is so written that it forms a bond of union between heaven and earth. See what is written on this subject in the work on heaven and hell, Numbers 303 to 310. So he references his work, Heaven and Hell, there. The Lord, nevertheless, so disposes it that spirits and men are seldom brought together so closely as to converse with, with one another. For by intercourse with spirits, men are brought into such a condition as to their souls that they are speedily in danger of their life. So see our show, Is It Safe to Talk to Spirits? Wherefore, I would dissuade all from cherishing such desires. The Lord himself has been pleased to introduce me into converse and intercourse with spirits and angels for the reasons which have been explained in my writings. Wherefore, I am protected by the Lord himself from the many desperate attempts and attacks of evil spirits. So, um, so there... What he means by the reason that has been explained in his writings is that Swedenborg felt that the only reason why he was given communication with spirits and angels was for the purpose of writing down his experiences and having this revelation about the internal sense of the word, which was the subject of all of his um, books that he wrote. So Swedenborg didn't think it was his place to train other people in how to communicate with spirits. That was really just up to the Lord um, and to divine providence when that would um, if it was safe or useful for that to happen. So Swedenborg did develop friendships late in life with people who became devoted to disseminating his works and defending their value um, against attacks. Um, and, but these weren't people who he was training um, to carry on his work. It was really just people who found value in what he did write and wanted to translate and publish and spread those ideas. And um, so in 1769, only three years before his death, on a trip to London, he met um, a Quaker named William Cookworthy and a clergyman of the Church of England named Thomas Hartley. And these two together issued some of the first editions of Swedenborg's works in English. And those editions are what, are what sparked the interest of Robert Heinmarsh, who would go on later to lead the formation of the first distinct Swedenborgian church. But that formation was after the death of Swedenborg, Cookworthy, and Hartley. Um, and something I'll just end with is that it was in the letter to Hartley that um, Swedenborg makes clear his own sense of purpose, that it's not to train disciples or gather a personal following. Um, he writes... The only reason of my journeys abroad has been the desire of making myself useful and of making known the arcana that were entrusted to me. Terry asks, 
Is the afterlife supposed to be more logical than the jumbled images we get in dreams? And uh, Terry asked that question during the show, what will you remember in the afterlife? Which is a great episode if you're interested in, you know, communication. Uh, if someone passes before you, you know, what, is, what do they remember? Do you remember people if you pass before other people? So anyway, it's a very fascinating episode if, if you want to know more about that. So I, I recommend it. I'm going to be Curtis right now. I recommend it. Um, so I just want to unpack that question a little bit. There's a lot to it. It's a, sm it's a small question. It's a short question, but there's just so much to it that I, I, I want to kind of honor that question as best I can. Um, so there's, there's a lot of ideas. So one is, you know, the afterlife versus the physical world. So, you know, we're here in the physical world right now, and, you know, things seem very solid here in this world. Is the afterlife, in so like, not solid? Is it very ethereal? What, is, what does that mean? How do they compare? Also, this idea of logical, you know, like, it, is, is logic just something that exists here in the physical world? Is, is, is something... Can something be logical in the afterlife? I mean, what, what does that really mean? And this, um, also this idea of dreams. I mean, we all have dreams. And I think we've all had all different kinds of dreams. And I know I've had dreams where things have just seemed very, very poignant and crystal clear. And like, there's a message here. And I don't know if someone was trying to send me a message or if, if there was some inspiration there I was supposed to get. But I, I definitely have dreams where things just make no sense whatsoever. And I think most of my dreams, if not, you know, 99.9% .9 of my dreams just don't really make sense. It's just, you know, I'm trying to go somewhere and it takes me, you know, the entire night just to try to get back to that room I started in because I, I forgot my pencil or something. Or, you know, I meant to be wearing, you know, a certain uh, shirt and, I, and then and I can't find it or it, my shirt keeps changing or something. Like, I just have no control over what's going on in my dream. And, and the people I talk to, you know, I, I think I'm talking to my sister and then it turns out to be my aunt. And what's that about? And, you know, what, what is going on? It, it's, it seems like it, it doesn't make sense at all. This idea that... Uh, Dreams have this certain, you know, baseline uh, logic or illogical uh, feel to them. And like, is the afterlife like the dreams? I think a lot of people, when we think of pop culture, the way the afterlife is depicted in pop culture, or even in our own heads, you know, it, it seems very ethereal. It seems very insubstantial. Like, you know, we think of ghosts in the haunted house and they're, they're very ethereal. They flow through walls and they, maybe they're not aware of us. They're kind of off doing their own thing in their heads or maybe they're very aware of us, but in and out. Um, so, so is that, is that the afterlife? Is the afterlife just this very, uh, wis wispy place where there's nothing substantial to, or, or, you know, anything real to hold on to? Well, Swedenborg, he talks a lot about the afterlife. You know, he, he talks a lot about, um, the, the people he meets in the afterlife. Uh, he talks about colors. He talks about animals. He talks about, he talks about the environment, you know, what's going on around him, the weather. And he has some very interesting things to say, and I just want to couple, touch on a couple of them. One of them, um, he mentions that uh, space and distance between between angels, between other spirits in the in the afterlife, um, isn't like it is on the physical plane. In the physical world, you know, you you walk ten feet away from someone, and you're ten feet away from them, and and um, you might be having a very close conversation with someone that you disagree with, you know, very harshly, very completely. You just, you, I don't know how you're even in that conversation. Or you might have loved ones that are across the planet. They're, you know, you're in the United States and they're in Australia, and you miss them, and you really wish you could go and talk to them. Well, Swedenborg mentions in the afterlife that uh, 
distance and the space between people, the space between people and things, it doesn't have, it's not, a, it's not the same in the earth. It has a lot to do with the state of people. So if you're in a state where you have this affection or that you're, if you're thinking about something in a certain way uh, and someone else is thinking about that same thing as an angel is thinking about, you know, forgiveness and you're thinking about forgiveness, you're going to be really close to that angel and, you know, even have conversations with that angel. Um, and also, if you have uh, very opposing thoughts uh, to a to a being, like if say you're you're thinking about forgiveness, and another person, another spirit is thinking about revenge and and how to get back, and you're going to be very far apart. You know, you you have very opposing states. Uh, and if you want to learn more about that kind of idea of distance and traveling in the afterlife, uh, we did a great episode on how to travel in the afterlife. I love. Her disappointing, um, but we, but uh, like I said, uh, Swedenborg also he, he witnessed um, objects change around him and the weather changed around him. Um, he said that in in this book, Married Love or in Conjugal Love, as some translations uh, put it, that uh, you know he was meditating on the the mysteries or the arcana of marriage love, and he in particular uh, what he thought wives knew or that the wisdom of wives. And as he was meditating on this, he said off in the distance, he saw this hall and uh, there was a golden rain that was coming down on the hall. And, and that uh, golden rain was a direct uh, result of, of that love. So um, and he said he actually saw he saw that twice. Uh, so those things kind of uh, are, are made present or made, you're made aware of those things when you're thinking about um, those ideas or your your affections are in that in that area. So this just really um, comes to the point that I, I want to get to, which is um, the idea of an outer state and an inner state. So when we're in the physical world here, we have two things. We have an outer state and an inner state, and they don't have to look like each other. So you could be, um, let's say, a, a very selfish person on the inside, and all you want is you want people to to love you, but like in a very negative way. You want you want all the praise, you want all the credit, you want all the glory for something, and so you. But on the outer, on your in your outer self, you do all these wonderfully seeming things. Like you're very charitable, you're very giving, you you know you seem to be helping people, but your inner self isn't looking. To help those people, all you really want is is the credit. So that's an example of where your inner and your outer state are in disagreement. But what Swedenborg says, when you get to the the afterlife, your your outer state is actually a perfect reflection of your inner state. So what you what you love truly and deeply inside, and what you think about and meditate on, it it it's, it becomes your outer self. So if you if you're thinking about someone. And, you, and you know, you're, you're thinking about someone in a, in a positive way. You know, thought brings presence, as Swedenborg says. Or if you're in a certain state, you know, the, the environment may change around you because those inner things that are you become the, become the, outer, the outermost. So I just wanted to get back to this idea of, you know, is heaven going to be more logical than our jumbled dreams? And I'd say yes, absolutely, because... Um, the, the, the space or the, the environment that you are in in heaven is a perfect reflection of your state, which um, couldn't be more logical. It couldn't, it couldn't, uh, you couldn't express it more logically. And the love that you're experiencing and the love that, and the interactions that you're having are so you know, perfect and genuine that um, there's, nothing, there's nothing illogical and nothing sort of uh, shadowy about it. It's, it's all very present. It's all, it's all very good. Vox Pensive asked, is the rapture right in your opinion? Will it take place? 
And to Nietzsche I ask, is our Lord coming back? Will we be raptured up? The word rapture is actually not found in the Bible. It's a concept that has been pieced together from a number of different Bible quotes, and Swedenborg learned remarkable things about what the Bible really is and how it works. We made a show about that called What the Bible Is. He learned that the Bible is a holy document because it is alive with deeper meaning within the literal text, like a soul within a body, and that multiple layers of deeper meanings connect with the literal text in complex ways. And he learned that the Bible is a document that was written not only for people on earth, but also for people in the spiritual realm who would understand deeper levels of meaning in the words, which is quite amazing. In discussing a passage in the Gospel of Matthew, Swedenborg wrote this in Secrets of Heaven 9049. This discussion shows how the Lord spoke when he was in the world. As he did throughout the Old Testament word, he spoke for the benefit both of angels in heaven and of people in the world. So, back to rapture. The idea that Jesus will physically come back to earth and that there will be cataclysms and that people will rise up into the air to meet Jesus is based on putting together a few passages from different places in the Bible. Swedenborg learned that these passages are symbolic as far as people on earth are concerned. They're about things that would happen to our minds and spirits rather than to our physical bodies. For instance, passages in Matthew 24 and Luke 17 say that two men will be working in a field. One will be taken, the other left. People have thought that that means that there will come a time when Jesus will physically come back to earth and draw some people up into the air with him and leave others behind. But Swedenborg learned that the text is symbolic, meaning that any two people on earth can be doing the same outward activities, even working side by side, and yet one be doing them from good motivations and goals and the other from harmful and selfish motivations and goals. So one would be rising up toward heaven in spirit while the other isn't. Uh, we explain a lot more about what Swedenborg learned concerning symbolic end times um, in scripture in our show that's called End Times in Jesus Christ. But there's another significance to Bible passages that describe cataclysmic and fantastic end times type scenes. Those things were not going to physically happen on earth, according to Swedenborg. There have been plenty of changes on earth, and I'm sure there's plenty more to come. But those rapture-like descriptions in the Bible were instead describing and predicting things that actually would experientially happen in the spiritual realm, not in the physical realm. Because remember, the Bible wasn't only written for people on earth. It was also written for people in the spiritual realm. So, for instance, there is a passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which describes Jesus descending from heaven and people rising up into the air to meet him. Well, Swedenborg witnessed this happening in the spiritual realm, in the world of spirits between heaven and hell. Please take a look at our show, The Last Judgment, to learn a lot about the last judgment that Swedenborg witnessed happening in the spiritual realm back in 1757, with its many very dramatic cataclysms and events. But I'll read you a few excerpts that we didn't include in that show, because we can never include all the information. This scene sounds just like the rapture that people have been expecting on earth, but it happened in the world of spirits, in the afterlife. 
So after many, many cataclysms described in our show about the Last Judgment that Swedenborg was watching, he wrote this. The Lord appeared in a bright cloud surrounded by angels, and out of the cloud came a sound like the sound of trumpets. This was a sign of the Lord's protection of heaven's angels and of the gathering of the good from all sides. You see, the Lord does not bring destruction on anyone. All he does is protect his own and withdraw them from their communication with the evil. Once they have been withdrawn, the evil become fully engaged in their obsessions and therefore plunge into all kinds of reprehensible behavior. That's from Supplements 28, which was formerly called Continuation of the Last Judgment. Swedenborg then saw that all the people in the world of spirits, or, or many of the people in the world of spirits who hated and railed against the Lord, took the form of a giant dragon, which plummeted down toward hell, and other people plummeted down toward hell in other ways. And then came the rapture-like scene, which really did happen in the world of spirits in the sp spiritual realm. Swedenborg wrote, After the final judgment was accomplished, joy broke out in heaven and a light in the world of spirits that had not been there before. The nature of the joy in heaven after the dragon was cast down is described in Revelation 12, 10 to 12. And the light broke out in the world of spirits because those hellish communities had been interposed like clouds that darken the earth. A similar light arose on us in this world too, bringing us a new enlightenment. So the event did affect the abilities of our minds on earth. But now here comes the rapture scene that happened in the spiritual realm. Then I saw angelic spirits rising from the lower regions in great numbers and being lifted up into heaven. These were the sheep, individuals from previous centuries who had been held there and protected by the Lord so that they would not be caught up in the malign aura that flowed out from the dragon and so that their caring would not be stifled. They are the people meant in the word by the ones coming out of their sepulchers, the souls killed because of the testimony of Jesus and the ones who were from the first resurrection. That's from supplements numbers 30 and 31. People that the Bible refers to with phrases such as um, sleeping in Christ or dead in Christ or sleeping or in their graves until a resurrection means these people that were hidden and protected in safe places in the lower parts of the, uh, the world of spirits until it would be safe for them to come out and be guided into heaven. And as you heard, Swedenborg actually saw them rising up into the air to go toward the Lord and heaven. So according to what Swedenborg learned and witnessed, there was a rapture that already happened back in the mid-1700s. It happened in the spiritual realm rather than on earth. But the whole spiritual event of the Last Judgment has had a big effect on the minds of people on earth, making a new kind of understanding and enlightenment possible, which is continuing to grow. So it has made it possible for our minds and spirits to be rising toward God and heaven in a way that wasn't possible to before, which we can then experience more fully in the afterlife. Evelyn asks, do personal and physical sufferings help the purification of our soul and lead us closer to God? And I think it's a great question because we got to be wondering why are these things even in our lives in the first place? And are they playing a good role? And I'd say that, yes, those things are accomplished, but I want to offer some clarification on Swedenborg's view on 
exactly how we get from sufferings to purifications. It's not like God is sitting there and saying, you know, I'm going to, you need a little bit of suffering, toughen you up and, and, and get you to be worthy of my love or something like that. There have been traditions that sort of think that's a part of it. It's, you need to feel the pain of suffering. It's not like somehow agony purifies that just that it's something that hurts. Like if you, if you stub your toe, that's a purification. It's only, pain is only a last resort, any kind of pain, psychological pain, emotional pain. It's a last resort um, only just as much as can be helpful or useful is applied. And it's not that God is applying suffering, but that the spiritual struggles we go through where we are rejecting anything that used to be part of us that's negative or destructive, to do that, to move from having a, the previous will that we all start out with of self-centeredness, materialism, those sorts of things, into this will of universal mutual love, that's that's a painful process. And you might liken it to exercise or on a grander scale, giving birth, that there are pains attended just because of the magnitude of what's happening. But I want to say that it's not the the suffering, it's the the learning, it's its what comes out of it. It's the humility. Um, and it's also, though, some of it is about suffering. We, we have certain concepts that we're attached to, but if there's enough, those concepts cause enough suffering that we actually feel we're more uh, able to, sorry, my phone just dinged, we're more able to reject those, you know, because we see finally the, the issues that those cause. Swedenborg says the only way that we grow is through what he calls spiritual temptations. So these are these are combats of the spirit, and they do manifest as distress and those sorts of things. It's but all that they do is present an opportunity. Um, it's not that everything painful that anyone goes through automatically makes you go spiritually. Sometimes it just stops you from doing something worse. Uh, but if we are learning. Uh, the true nature of our connection to God, uh, our, our gaining some humility, some dependence through difficult things, then, yeah, there can be a spiritual component to it. Swedenborg says that in those states of temptation and spiritual de- despair, it seems like God is absent. Like There's no God, and certainly not a benevolent, present God. But he says, then God is closer than we could ever believe. So there's something about we go through this process together, even if it doesn't feel like it. There's the Footprints poem a lot of people reference uh, to get at that concept. And there's something to this going through ordeals and overcoming them. Jesus Christ, that his suffering on the cross, Swedenborg says, was sort of the ultimate example of this. It's not because the suffering is good, but it's about that you'd love something enough that you're willing to undergo the chaos that, that you have to feel to get through it. In conclusion, I mean, it's such a broad topic and it's so meaningful that I, I, I say depends on how you're asking the question. But but in general, the things that are allowed to happen in life are only allowed to happen if some kind of good can come out of it. And if we're willing to approach suffering, and suffering is tough stuff, so it's not always easy to do this, but the more we're willing to approach it as an opportunity to strengthen our belief that God is working through it, even if it doesn't feel like it, as an opportunity to try to solidify ourselves in particular truths, like even though this seems like it's falling apart, I'm going to trust that God is doing something with it, uh, or even just realizing our dependence on God and the need for help, that can be used to advance spiritually. And I'm sure that God doesn't like it when we're suffering. I mean, that's a given. You think about 
if, if you're a parent or, or you have somebody that you really care about, you don't want to see them suffer. And that's exponentially greater with God. But think about the the joy of, okay, we've got this hard thing here now, but this is going to lead you one step closer to heaven if we, if we go at this the right way. And that heaven is eventually this rest from these kinds of sufferings and, and into this the eternal joy it, with variation, but but so much happier than we have it here, that, that, God, that, that was God's original plan for the human race. So if you're sitting there saying, oh, are, is anything coming out of this stuff that I'm going through? Yes, it's not that God is sitting there Here's a hard thing. Have that, have that, have that. But it is the divine working with any the worst things life could throw at us to bring us closer. And uh, something good can come out of everything. That's the, that's the core of providence. So, again, I feel like it's an inadequate answer because it's such a big question. But those are a couple of my thoughts. Thanks so much for asking. One person who uses the name MTP358 asked this question. If someone dies while they're intoxicated... Will they stay that way after death? When I think about the question of intoxication and unfortunate death resulting from that, let's first look at the issue of from a civil point of view or a legal point of view. We all know the situation when somebody has consumed too much alcohol, they're driving a car, the police stops them, and the police person's job is to try to figure out if the person has consumed too much, gone beyond the legal limit. You can also look at this uh, intoxicated person from a medical perspective. Imagine there's an emergency room and the person has overdosed. And they would assess which kinds of drugs, what kind of effect is it having on the person? Has this been a one-time only? Or does it look like the person's been consuming way too many drugs for many, many years? And at what point has the body just given up? and the person dies from an overdose. But today we're going to look at it from a spiritual point of view, particularly the Swedenborgian spiritual point of view. And I like to look at what's going on in a person's life before they die, and then what happens, according to Swedenborg, after they die. And the question of drunkenness or intoxication or overdosing on any kind of a mind-altering substance is uh, an interesting question. Obviously, it's the question's been around for thousands of years. This is not just a recent question, but it's a question that many of us have because the drugs can make us feel good for a while, but then they can really destroy us, either over a short period of time or a long period of time. And when somebody dies while they're under the influence, this, this inquirer wants to know, well, what happens next? So uh, let's just look at a couple of different numbers from the writings. The first is from uh, True Christianity, number 443, and this is a section, I'm not going to read the whole quote, but this, in this section it talks about four different stages of life that people go through. And the first stage is when they just follow other people's instructions. They're just followers. The second and third stage have to do with sort of a struggle between what I want to do, what I should do, you're sort of developing a conscience. And the fourth more mature stage has to do with somebody who is deliberate and purposeful. That's what we're striving for, is to be deliberate and purposeful. Okay, so back to our example of somebody who's intoxicated. Swedenborg emphasizes that the Lord is looking at somebody in terms of what was their mental state, either immediately before or in their life at that stage of life. So let's say they're just 15 years old and they're not fully mature yet. 
and they're just trying to follow other people. Well, Swedenborg would say that that's a pretty uh, simple lower stage of development morally. And the person is not really held as responsible because they're just following. Whereas somebody who is more mature and has, the, has had the opportunity for their brain to develop and they have developed a lifestyle, and let's say it does involve a lot of drugs and alcohol, and they're deliberate and purposeful, they are far more responsible for that. And another book, Kajuja Love or Marital Love, and in this section, I'm looking at the numbers uh, 480 through 495, that section. And although that book is particularly talking about um, the example of adultery, I like to take the, this particular part of the book because it talks about what is the mental state of somebody when they uh, commit something such as adultery. So let's take the ideas and put them over to this question of intoxication. What's the mental state of somebody? And again, there's sort of a sequence of severity. At the least severe, the person is really following others. They really have no idea what the effect of the drug or alcohol will be on them. And again, it could be a child, could be a teenager, or it could be somebody who has very limited intelligence, but older. They're not as held responsible. Um, moving along on the level of severity, you have somebody who maybe um, has the ability to reason carefully. They know what's right and what's wrong, what will hurt them. And uh, yet, maybe after the first couple of drinks, they've lost their rationality. Their frontal lobe is not working very well anymore. And they make the mistake of uh, doing uh, an overdose. They do more and more and more. They only intended to drink one or two glasses, and they way overdid it. And they were intoxicated, even to the point of death. A little more severe, a little more responsible, but still, somebody's not making very good decisions while they're under the influence. So according to Swedenborg, that person's not nearly as responsible as somebody who's at the third or the fourth stage. The third or fourth stage of severity of somebody's decisions is when somebody knows what they're doing, they premeditate, they plan ahead of time, and then they do it. And the fourth stage is they do all that premeditation, planning ahead of time, and they love it. And so when that happens, their rationality and their will is involved. They are completely morally and spiritually responsible for what they're doing. And that matters if they have been intoxicated so often that they've neglected their family, their job, and they've become a burden on society if this has happened a lot. And they seem to be oblivious or not care. They're much more interested in just enjoying the, the drugs and alcohol. So level of severity really matters. How much are you thinking ahead of time? How much are you emotionally engaged in what you're doing? And how much are you not? How much do you not care about the effect of your behavior on others? So those are just some of the ideas that I have uh, been able to gather in answering this question. Another um, angle that we could take from a Swedenborgian perspective is from the book Secrets of Heaven. I'm looking at 1072. And in this part of the, the writings, uh, Swedenborg is talking about, well, what do people correspond to who have a certain uh, style of life? So in this particular number, it's talking about, well, what does it represent when somebody is intoxicated a lot? And according to the writings, it says here, 
souls in the other life who argue about the truths of faith and against them even become as drunkards and act like them. So the key word there is arguing. In another section of that same number, you have people who are very willing to learn new truths. It's almost like a, a college student who's willing to go to college and learn new things. Or somebody who doesn't know how to do something and they look it up in a book. Especially if they're spiritually inquisitive. They're willing to go learn it. Whereas somebody who is uh, in the other life who is not willing to learn, they think, oh, I already know enough. I'm smart enough. And I just want to argue with everybody else. Because I'm right and they're probably wrong. That unwillingness to, to learn new ideas of doctrinal matters and argue about it. That is what is represented by somebody who's too intoxicated. Interesting. So if you have people who are in this life acting less than fully rational because they're under the influence too often and to the point of actually dying, will they stay that way after the next life? Again, it depends. Were they just following the crowd? Everybody else was at the frat party, so they drank too much and they died. They're just following. It's not as severe as somebody who knew better. They had a fully rational mind. They knew the effects of way too much consumption of drugs or alcohol. And they knew that it was going to lead to possibly neglecting their family, neglecting their jobs, neglecting their health. And they did it anyway. And they are more responsible if they deliberately did it, they purposely did it, and they didn't care about the effects on other people. So it's not so much, were they drunk at the time of their death? That The medical people would focus on that. The legal civil courts will focus on what was the person's level of uh, toxics, the toxic substances in their body. But the spiritual level has more to do with whether or not Somebody loves what they're doing. They intended to do it. They did it frequently. And they justify everybody else is doing it. Doesn't really matter. And they don't really care about the effects on others. Those people are more spiritually responsible. And again, they correspond to the kinds of spirits in the other world that are kind of full of themselves and think that they have all the right answers already. And they swagger around and argue with anybody about anything. Very much like a person who is in a bar, just arguing with people, not ready to learn anything new. So that's what I gather when I look in the writings and, and, and gather some ideas about this perspective. Exit by Flight asked, does Swedenborg talk about the reign of Jesus for a millennium in Revelation? He's referring to something in Revelation chapter 20, and I'm going to read verse 4 here. It says, I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. According to Swedenborg, everything predicted in the book of Revelation has already happened in the spiritual realm. Uh, back when he was witnessing 
that big event uh, in 1757. The book of Revelation is written in the language of symbolism, which is a very spiritual language, and in it we are being told the story of that huge event that Swedenborg witnessed, the Last Judgment, in the spiritual realm. Now see our show, The Last Judgment, for a general overview of that whole event, but I'll share with you um, some thoughts about this specific part of the story um, in Revelation chapter 20. So this verse is about um, groups of people who had died and were in the world of spirits, that realm between heaven and hell. And uh, these are people who were good-hearted. Um, they knew that, uh, you know, to serve God wasn't just uh, an intellectual exercise. It was needing to live a life of kindness and love and service and usefulness. And so they, but in the world of spirits at this time, leading up to the last judgment, there was a lot of chaos because there were a lot of teachers and preachers and, and a sort of authoritative figures in the world of spirits who were teaching false doctrine and trying to push an agenda of a very exclusive and external and intellectual kind of faith that was just about uh, touting certain beliefs um, rather than living the life that Christ demonstrated and taught. And so people who were just good-hearted um, needed to be protected uh, because they would be vulnerable. It was confusing with all these teachers and using religious uh, language and things. So uh, this is a verse about um, what was going on with these people, these good-hearted people, um, as they were being protected. And then um, when it was clear, you know, like safe to be guided towards heaven to be able to come into the fulfillment of, of the life of heaven. So I'm going to read um, uh, the, the part of the quote that says, And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. Um, that has to do with that these people were persecuted. Um, you know, just good-hearted people living good lives were being persecuted by... Um, authoritative figures who tried to uh, condemn them for not, you know, saying the religious phrases right or whatever. In Apocalypse Revealed 846, Swedenborg wrote, The souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God mean people after death, who are then called spirits, people clothed in a spiritual body, who were hidden away by the Lord in the lower earth until the evil had been removed by the last judgment. They are said to have been beheaded because they were rejected by people caught up in falsities, hatched out of their own intelligence, who are all those caught up in evils and so in falsities, and yet in outward appearances are worshippers of God. So that phrase has to do with um, the persecution of just simple, good-hearted people trying to live a good life by those who considered themselves uh, smarter and, and more religious um, just because of their intellectual um, way of uh, saying religious things. So good-hearted people were being protected in these areas in the spiritual realm, in the world of spirits, between uh, heaven and hell, but below the world of spirits, um, hidden away and kept safe until the evil could be uh, removed when the time was ripe and these um, false teachers could start to be cleared away out of the world of spirits, 
um, then the way would be clear that these good-hearted souls could be safely guided, brought up out of those lower lower areas where they were being protected, and guided towards the life of heaven that they uh, wanted, because that they had been um, connecting with already by the way they lived. The, the next part of the phrase says that these people had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And that means they were people who did did not let their lives be marked by this attitude that religion is just about saying the right things and that it doesn't matter how you live your life and that it doesn't have to be attached to repentance and, you know, examining yourself and and living with more kindness and service. Um, So these, that would be the mark of the beast. Um, Just having your life marked by saying, it doesn't matter what I do. I don't have to be nice to that, that person who thinks differently than me because I already have it made. I've got the right religion. That would be the mark of the beast. So these are people who had not received the mark of the beast. They knew that you got to live a life of goodness, kindness, service. Um, so because that is the way they lived, the last part of the verse says they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So this number Swedenborg writes in Apocalypse Revealed 849 talks about that. Those who lived with Christ symbolize people who have possessed a conjunction with the Lord because these have life. So they, their hearts had connected with the Lord, which means they had life in their hearts. Those who reigned with Christ symbolize people who were in his kingdom. So already apart, connected with heaven, um, which is the Lord's kingdom. A thousand years symbolizes for some time because numbers in the Bible are never about fixed measurements of time. They are part of the symbolic language and a thousand just means a while, you know, a, a, a while in which something is going on um, between other things that are going on. This declaration is said of people who in their life in the world worshiped the Lord and lived in accordance with his commandments in the word. See, that's key. Lived in accordance with the commandments. Did the will of the Father, as Jesus said. After death, they were protected to keep dragon spirits from leading them astray. Dragon spirits would be these false teachers um, teaching uh, faith alone without any connection with kindness and usefulness. Thus they were people who for some time had possessed a conjunction with the Lord already and were, in respect to their interiors, affiliated with angels in heaven. To reign with Christ does not mean to reign with him, but to be in his kingdom by conjunction with him. For the Lord alone reigns, and everyone in heaven engaged in some occupation performs some service in his society as in the world. But he does so under the Lord's direction. Angels act, indeed, as though of themselves, but because they regard primarily the useful services they perform, they act from the Lord, from whom originates every useful endeavor. So to live and reign with Christ, to live is just to be connected with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the life of love in action. And to reign with Christ does not mean um, ruling over others, because Christ, Jesus Christ reigning 
is not a domination thing. It is a, uh, an organizing presence that lets love organize um, the way things work in heaven. And to reign with Christ means to be a part of that, to be a part of that um, system of love in action. And so it's not about dominating or ruling over anybody. It's about serving, uh, just being a part of the Lord's kingdom, um, a part of the Lord's reign or the reign of love, love reigning. So there's a few thoughts. Um, there's a lot of context around these verses. Uh, so hopefully that at least gives you a sense of um, uh, the meaning, uh, you know, they, uh, the, um, the inner quality of, of these phrases and, and what it means to live and reign with Christ a thousand years. So Sharon asks a fantastic question. Uh, is man inherently evil? If all that is good and true come from the Lord, does that mean our inherent nature is without goodness or truth? Or are we inherently neutral? If we receive influx from both heaven and hell, and it is within our free will in which we choose one or the other, does that mean that we start out on a more neutral ground? What about the remains that the Lord places with us as infants? Are we born with them? And if so, does this mean that we are born with inherent goodness? So this is a loaded question, and I chose it because I think it has so many implications for our worldview, our lives, and beyond. So one of the things I want to start with framing is this question of, are we inherently evil? And this is something that people, organizations, church bodies have been grappling with for millennia. Swedenborg writes directly that, uh, that there is no such thing as original sin. So we are not born damned because of the actions of biblical characters. Uh, that the, the mistake that Adam and Eve made in eating from the, the tree of knowledge uh, isn't passed down as uh, faults of the success of generations of descendants. That's not the case, he says. But what he does write is this, and this is really game-changing, at least for me. Um, there's this idea that we are born with something called hereditary evils. And this is something that I think drives well with psychology and even biology or genetics, this idea that our family lines pass down certain traits to us, um, and those traits build up and build up and build up throughout the generations of families, and we have these dispositions or inclinations toward evil. But it doesn't make us evil, it's just if we act on those inclinations, then we bring those evils out into our lives. So we're not born evil, but we are born with many inclinations toward, towards evil. Where the Lord balances that out is in the idea of something called remains. And Sharon, you, you clearly have a, a fantastic knowledge of the writings because that's, that's a pretty uh, powerful and uh, mysterious thing at times, at least to, to me when I came into the writings for the first time. But this is a really beautiful thing. The Lord plants in us remains which are, according to Swedenborg's book, Secrets of Heaven, a state of innocence from babyhood, a state of love for our parents, siblings, teachers, and friends, a state of charity toward our neighbor and compassion toward the poverty-stricken and needy. In short, it is all states of goodness or truth. These states, along with the good and true things imprinted on our memory, are called a remnant. The Lord preserves them in us, hiding them away in our inner being without our slightest awareness and carefully separating them from the things that are our own. In other words, from evil and falsity. If we had no remnant, 
we could not help being damned for eternity. Whoa. So this is a kind of cool concept. And what it really is expressing is this. We have feelings um, of love in our lives from birth onward, or affections from learning something true from a parent or a mentor or a teacher. And those things the Lord uses and implants in us, they become affections for doing good and living good lives. And they balance out these inclinations towards evil that we have in a way that actually can give us hope towards living a new life in Christ. So Sharon, my answer to you about whether or not we're born inherently evil is this. As you said, it's more of a neutral ground. We have this spiritual equilibrium that allows us to be in community with, with hellish societies and in heavenly societies, and we have the ultimate choice uh, through that freedom from the Lord to, to every day and every action uh, choose goodness or evil. But we're not damned from the outset, and that's a really important concept, at least in my heart. So I hope that, that helps. Uh, thanks so much for asking that question. Shawnee asks, could someone truly embody the core of these concepts in any way without believing in an afterlife at all? Is it possible? Here are some thoughts. I think we're called to do that. Most of us probably won't believe in an afterlife when we begin to embody these concepts. I think as we put them into practice and embody them, the reality of eternal life is revealed to us only gradually. But it's not like you're not really getting it if you don't believe in an afterlife. Because according to Swedenborg, belief is secondary to life. And so, and the purpose of belief is to feed into how we really live. My sense from my experience and exposure to other religious traditions is that even people who don't believe in a God per se, but reflect on their own consciousness, come to see that consciousness itself is timeless. So I think it's possible to tap into the eternity of consciousness in yourself without ascribing to a particular set of beliefs about the afterlife. And we'll all learn what the afterlife is actually like when we get there. Scripture, and so also Swedenborg, teaches that God is love itself. And if we are living from that love and orienting our lives to that love, whether we conceptualize it as God in our minds or perhaps simply as a sense of the importance of loving our neighbor, we are embodying these concepts. I love how 12 Steps um, articulates it, that you need to have a sense of a higher power, but your higher power might just be the group itself that you keep showing up to or the community that you're a part of. And it's, it might stay that way for a long time. But the core piece is that we recognize that there is something greater than ourselves and that we are a part of something bigger. Now, I was thinking about it, and if you're staunchly against the idea of an afterlife, you might ask yourself, why am I attached to this belief that there is no afterlife? Your answer could lead you to insights about the motivation behind that belief. Swedenborg writes about how examining our beliefs can give us insight into what we really think about God and not in a condemning way, but really in a liberating way, because we're all walking around with beliefs that are invisibly influencing the way that we live, and it's only upon reflection that we might think, oh, I don't actually like living this way as if X, Y, and Z is true. So it'd be interesting to ask yourself, if I don't believe in an afterlife, 
what does that say about my concept of God? What kind of a God would have to exist for and yet choose to not have anything like an afterlife? And does that God really make sense? And you could also do it the other way and say, what do I think are the most core aspects of God? And if that's the case, would a God that is blank create life? Or like, what would that God actually create? In a sketch for his work, True Christianity, um, called Canons of the New Church, Swedenborg offers a prologue that has some striking ideas in it that relate to this question. Um, In it, he says, the church, and so what he means by church is the um, religious organizations of his day, but really it comes down to the mindset of the individuals um, and even just of one individual. So the church of this day errs concerning God, it errs concerning faith, it errs concerning charity, and it knows nothing of eternal life. Thus, it is in thick darkness. So we collectively and he means especially those in the Christian world of his day, have gotten completely lost about these core things, God, faith, charity, and eternal life. He says, though, that we are now in an era when we can be brought back into a real understanding of spiritual reality. And he begins this prologue with an astounding statement directly about what we need to come into a genuine understanding of these things. He says, at this day, Nothing else than the self-evidencing reason of love can reestablish that which has fallen away. That's the core of these concepts, love. Everything else will be brought into order when we live in alignment with the self-evidencing reason of love. That's our show for this week. I hope that you guys had as much fun watching as we did trying our best to answer them. Thank you so much again for your interest in Swedenborg and asking these tough questions so that we can really dig in and try to come to some kind of understanding. If you enjoyed the show as well, please like and subscribe. And when you subscribe, make sure you get to that little bell and turn on get all notifications or else you might not know when we put out a great video. And if you want to make this show possible, consider supporting us on Patreon. We have a community there of people who are not just watching the show, but making it uh, a thing that can happen financially. It's a dollar an episode. If you feel like you can handle that, then we'll be giving you a thank you of awesome behind the scenes content, intimate, all access looks at how this stuff is put together and made. So thank you to everyone who's doing it. And if you're not, take a look, see if you want to join that party. Next week, we're going to have a special video popping up on our channel. We won't have a regular episode, but I will have just spoken at the Conference for Consciousness and Human Evolution in London, and I'm going to be taking my phone camera with me and cataloging all kinds of stuff there. We're going to be meeting up with Swedenborg enthusiasts in the greater London area, getting their take on things. We're going to be venturing over to the Swedenborg Society to look at some Swedenborg artifacts and history and other interesting things and taking in the the flavor of the whole experience. So that'll be next Monday and then we'll be back with another show after that. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a great week. Swedenborg and Life is Amy Aquarola, Morgan Beard, Curtis Childs, Karen Childs, Matthew Childs, Alexa Cole, John Connolly, Cara Dom, Chris Dunn, Stuart Farmer, Ben Keyes, Reed McArdle, Chelsea Odner, Jonathan Rose, Shiloh Silverman, and Shada Sullivan.